morning. Hey, if you are a guest with us, I want to welcome you this morning. Uh, there's a lot of things you could have been doing on a Sunday morning. We're glad that you're here hanging out with us um, here at New Hope. If you would, at some point during the morning, there's a connect card in the seat back that's in front of you. When you fill that out, it lets us know you are here. It gives us the ability to pray for you and your family. Uh, you can drop that at the Welcome Center right out here in the lobby. So you just fill it out, keep it with you, and as you're walking out, uh, whoever's at the Welcome Center, just hand them your Connect card, and they'll, they'll take those and get them to our staff and our elders, and we really do appreciate when you do that. I was reading this past week um, an article about a man named Walt Bettinger. Uh, he's the CEO of Charles Schwab, which is one of the, b- the biggest investment uh, companies in the world, really. And he was uh, in college and describing his time in business school, saying that he had this final exam. And he had to get an A on this final exam in order to graduate school with a 4.0. And so this was a lot of pressure for him. So he arrives to the last day of classes on the last exam. And when he walks into the classroom, the professor says, hey, um, this is it. This is your final exam. Um, And so he put a piece of paper on every desk. And he says, go ahead and flip it over. And when they flipped it over, it was blank. And this kind of perplexed everybody in the class. The professor said, hey, over the last 10 weeks, I've taught you everything I know about business. I've given you everything that I can possibly give you when it comes to business and finances. And the only thing left is what I think is the most important lesson of all. All your final exam is is one question. What is the name of the woman who cleans this building? He was stunned. Ah, man. Couldn't figure it out. He said, it's the only test I ever failed. I got the B that I deserved because I didn't know her name. Her name was Dottie. And every day coming into class, focusing on myself, I'd never taken the time to get to know the person who was cleaning the building that I was in. And then he said, from that moment on, every place I've ever worked since the day of that exam, I've taken the time to get to know Dottie because I don't want to miss what's most important for what I'm focused on myself. What about you? Would you have passed that test? In a world that is so distracted, a world that is so easily consumed by ourselves, we oftentimes do miss everything that's going on around us. Just like that professor taught, sometimes we need to learn that same lesson. My wife's one of the most intentional people that I know. She's just extremely intentional. When you come into our home, she wants it to feel welcoming. When you sit with her and talk to her, um, she's going to listen very, very well, much better than I do. She's going to ask detailed questions. She's going to want to know what's going on in your life, and she's going to uh, offer you advice and counsel. She's just extremely intentional. And so one of the things that annoyed her from when we were back in college just dating, and it got even worse as we went, were these things. These things have always bugged her. She didn't like them. Uh, Early on, when we got cell phones in college, it was when we first got our cell phones, they were flip phones. They were these things that opened up, and they were heavy and bulky, and you really only used them for phone calls. And so when phones got advanced, they began to develop into what we call smartphones. Smart uh, because they hypnotize us, (laughs) not because they can do a lot of things. She couldn't stand it. She said the other day, she vividly remembers when I got my very first uh, smartphone, and uh, every time that I got an email, it would ding. And she said, that ding was like, like Pavlov's dog. It just infuriated her. Like, oh, I hate your phone. And it's only got worse ever since. 
I mean, from young people to old, we are captivated by these things, these devices that just draw us in and oftentimes cause us to miss what's going around us. And so my wife put this sign up multiple different ways around our home. Because when you come into our home, this, was, this is her hope. Just be present. Like, stop being so distracted. She wants us, much like the professor in Walt Bettinger's class, to not miss what's going on around us. What's most important for the thing we think in the moment is what we really want, only to figure out, man, I wish I would have been paying attention to Dottie. I wish I would have learned that name. I wish I would have paid attention to that person or that need. Look, if you've ever been there, feeling like you're captivated by something and you're missing what's going on around you, this is Amos. See, we're in a series walking through uh, the minor prophets, and we call them minor, like Ben said, not because they're insignificant, because they're short little books packed with major truth, major truth. And so as we've studied these, we've been challenged big time. Today's going to be no different. The story of Amos, there's so much going on. Let me be really honest with you. As you sit down to study this, I thought, man, let's do the minor prophets throughout the summer. And I looked back, I told David the other day, I was like, I don't know what I was thinking, because there's like nine chapters in this book, and there's so many things you could focus in on. Now, last week we studied Habakkuk, and we didn't know much about his background, but we know a little bit more about Amos. See, we know that Amos um, lived around 750 B.C. in the northern part of the kingdom of Israel. So Israel kind of separated into the northern and southern kingdoms. And he lives in the the northern part of the southern kingdom known as Judah, in a little town called Tekoa. and, And he was separated from the northern kingdom. And This is where he gets his call. Now, what's fascinating about this guy, I love this, and I really want you to pay attention to this part so you can, like, get distracted in a minute by your phone. Uh, What's really fascinating about Amos is this. He's just a regular dude. No formal training. He wasn't a trained preacher or a prophet. Now, when we say prophet, let me just revisit this really quick. A prophet is not someone who is predicting the future. It's, it's just a guy that had a message from God for the people. That, that, that's just the simplest definition I can give you. Is God gave this guy a message, a call to ministry. He goes and he delivers this message to the people. On behalf of God, here's what God wants you to know. Not so you can predict the future and, and start getting into all that weird stuff. This was the point of prophecy. Here's what's coming. Here's why it's coming. Change the way you're living right now. Change, change the way you're living right now because here's, what, here's what's coming. Here's what your life is headed toward if you don't focus on God. And so this is what he does. But he gets his call living in this town called Tekoa, and he's just a farmer. I mean, the Bible tells us, the book of Amos tells us that he had a a small herd of sheep that he took care of, and he was a fig tree farmer. Just a regular dude. And here's the thing that I'm just passionate about. I love this. I believe with all my heart. The next great spiritual revival in this country, I believe, is going to come through the business world, not the walls of the church. It's going to happen when everyday people include Jesus in every part of their life and take him in every arena that they're working in. And I think the business world in this country is prime, a prime place for God to bring the next great revival. Just ordinary people, not formally trained, not, spe- just not specially trained to be preachers. And te- now, that's like, then what's, your, what's the point of being here, Rob? <laughs> what's the point of what you do for a living? This is a training place. You come in, you get equipped, you get prepared, and then you go, and, and, and great revival is going to happen when everyday people take a hold of the mission of God. Well, God has called us to be missionaries, every single one of us. And this is what happens to Amos. He gets this call, and God says, I want you to go to the northern kingdom, and I want you to bring a message to the people. Now, this is a really interesting point, because when he shows up on the scene, he's going to a group of people that he doesn't quite know that well. 
And the northern kingdom had been experiencing great prosperity, like great prosperity. Jeroboam II had been leading a, a, a time of prosperity that was unparalleled since the time of Solomon. And if you know much about your Bible, you know Solomon was the wealthiest man to ever live. And yeah, he led through a time of great prosperity and peace. Well, this is what's happening in this northern kingdom. Great prosperity, great peace. I mean, when people are investing, they're making their money back. They're comfortable. They're building big houses. And they're living these great, secure, comfortable lives. And so when Amos shows up on the scene, and he begins to bring a message that says, hey, things aren't as good as they seem. Like, you think you got it together. You really don't have it together. You better get it together because this is what's happening. If you don't, they'd be like, what are you talking about? There's a picture that you could get uh, if you watch the video in the Read Scripture app. Here's a kind of a picture just to give you an idea. There he is in the northern kingdom just sitting on his money. I love that picture. Comfortable. Things are great. Things are secure. We've got no worries. They've taken over the trade routes all around the land around them. They begin to have political power and political influence that they hadn't had in so long. Things just felt so good. So this message that Amos brings to them, that ruin is headed their way, would have been really hard for them to fathom or fully understand. As a matter of fact, when Amos comes and he says things like this in chapter 2, verse 15, he who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. They're like, what? Are you, what? Amos, what are you talking about? Everything's awesome. We're political power. We're financially secure. For them, their archers were like their, their marksmen. They were like their top soldiers. So when he comes in and says the, the, the archers, they're not going to be able to stand on their feet because the, what's coming is even more incredible than them. And they're like, wait a second, those are our top military representation. One preacher said it this way. It would be like coming to us and saying, hey, what's headed your way is going to make your Navy SEALs sit in a fetal position and beg for their mommies. And so they're thinking, how's that possible? Everything's awesome. And you're bringing this message to us. But that's what happened. It didn't just happen. He says, hey, you've got to understand this is coming. And then it comes. And the people are taken captive. They're, they're, they're held uh, in exile. They're mistreated. They lose everything that they had. All of this takes place exactly like he said, if they didn't get it together. The question I have, though, is this. We could focus in on a lot. I mean, this book deals with so many relevant issues. But here's the question that I wrestled with as I tried to study the whole book. How'd they get there? Like, how did it get to this place? And you think about your life. Things could be going really well. You're in a season of prosperity. Finances are good. Your home is good. You feel safe. You feel secure. And it, maybe something's off. Spiritually, maybe inside, you're just dying. And the question is, if everything looks so good, how did they get to the place where they were completely drawn in, so captivated by themselves that they were missing all that God was trying to do all around them? Like, how did that happen? How were they not present with the Lord? What took place? Well, I'm convinced there's a lot of reasons, but there's three that really stood out to me in my study that I want to share with you today. Just three problems that they ran into that caused their downfall, even though everything looked good, on the outside. The first problem that they had was this, is their love of money. They failed to guard their hearts from the danger of wealth and success. Right? This is a big issue. Jeroboam brought in a season of great financial prosperity. The people began to lose their sight of their need for God. They felt money was the source of their security, so they pursued it with everything that they had. They fell in love with creation rather than continuing to be in love with the Creator. And their financial stability became the source of their security, which meant they needed to go after it with everything that they had. They weren't going to be stopped. It didn't matter if somebody got in their way. It didn't matter if they had to go and do something that was slightly immoral. They could justify anything because if we don't have this, we're not secure. 
We need to be secure, so we're going to go after her. They lost sight of it. Amos summarizes this in chapter 3, verse 10, when he says this, my people, this is God speaking to them, have forgotten how to do right. I think this really summarizes it. Their fortresses are filled with wealth taken by theft and violence. He said they're so consumed with money and building bigger houses and having more security that they've actually forgotten how to do the right thing. Like they've completely lost sight of what God had guided them to do. Just a little bit further down in that same chapter, verse 15, he says this, I will strike the winter house along with the summer house and the houses of ivory shall perish, declares the Lord. Now here's the thing. They had multiple houses. Look, you got multiple homes. You got a summer house. You got a winter house. You got this other house that you live in. Uh, and, and you just move around. You kind of go to whatever house you want. You're doing okay. Like you're doing good financially. Don't know if you realize that, but everything is pretty secure. And their moral compass had become so corrupt because of their pursuit of money that God says, I'm going to destroy it all. I can't have that. They're nice houses. They're summer houses. They're going to be gone because they love money more than they love me. Because they love the idea that money is their God. Meaning they serve money. They do anything they can to get money so that money provides the security that they really want. Well, I need to prove to them that money is not the source of their security. This is a problem for us, too. When we get to the place where we make our faith, our walk with Jesus, so safe and so comfortable, we've lost sight. We've lost sight of the mission that he's called us to. We become tunnel-visioned, if you will, so focused on ourselves and what we need and what we desire, we begin to only talk about material things and getting more and having more and retirement and money. And we're so focused on it that we've lost sight of what God has called us to do. There's a historian, Andrew Wells, and he made a fascinating observation where he points out that one of the major ways that Christianity is different from every other world religion. I find this fascinating. He says every other world religion... Its epicenter, so the source of its influence, is located where that religion started, where that world religion started. So for Buddhism, it was in the, uh, the Far East. And so where is the most influential place for Buddhists? It's in the Far East. And the Middle East is where Islam got its start, and that is where it is strongest even to this day. He said, but not Christianity. He said, Christianity has this epicenter that's constantly moving from place to place. It's like never located in one spot. He said, Christian, there's more Christians right now in Africa than there is anywhere else in the world. That's where Christianity is the strongest today. He says it started out with the Greeks, went to northern Africa, to Rome, to England, and then to America. Christianity center is always on the move. But why is that? Well, according to Wells, I really do agree with him too. He says there's this certain vulnerability or fragility that comes with the gospel or, or with Christianity, meaning its largest place of influence is with the vulnerable, the poor, those who are underprivileged. Why? Because when they learn about the message of the gospel and the hope of the gospel, there's this fearlessness about them, and there's not this safety about them. But over time, the message of Christianity kind of gets dulled out, and we make it this safe and secure place for the whole family to come. And church becomes this place of security and safety. Bring the whole family. We've got something for everybody, and it's safe, and it's secure, and it's, it's protected. And he says, when that happens, we get so focused on making everything comfortable, the center of Christianity just moves on. It just moves on somewhere else. And I believe this is what happened for them. God was moving through them, and their blessing came to them, and so much was coming their way, but they got so comfortable with it. They got so comfortable with that blessing that God was like, I, I got to move on because you've lost sight of what I've actually called you to do. Success and money can make us extremely comfortable. It can make us extremely comfortable. So comfortable that we stop genuinely seeking Jesus and following his lead. 
Now, nowhere in the Bible does it say that money's evil. It doesn't. But all throughout the Bible, hear me on this. Look, this isn't popular, but I want to say it. All throughout the Bible, it tells us money's dangerous. Never says it's evil, but it says it's dangerous. Why? Because money can be like this. Money can operate just like the cell phone. Look, it can be this great, wonderful blessing to so many people, but if you're not careful, if you're not very careful, it captivates you, and you begin to lose sight of everybody else around you because all you do is focus on yourself. This is what money can do. Jesus never said it was evil, but he constantly warned against it. Look at how he says it in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. He said to them, watch out. Like, watch out. Be careful. This is the concern of someone who loves them. Be careful. Guard your heart against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Guard your heart. That is not a past tense description. That is a present perfect. Continue to guard your heart is a, is a translation you could put there. Continue. Continually guard your heart. Constantly. Stay awake. Be present. Watch out because if you're not careful, just like Israel, you'll be so captivated with your comfort and your wealth, you'll miss what God's doing all around you. I think their second problem, in addition to their love of money, was their love of self. They had no regard for other people. We get this tunnel vision. This is what happens. When you begin focused on money, you're so focused on the money and the comfort that you begin to not be focused on the people around you. And then the people around you become a threat to your empire. Now, you're like, I don't have an empire, Rob. I think I'm good. You don't, but you do in your heart. You're pursuing something with such intentionality that anyone that becomes a threat to that is your enemy. And so you begin to mistreat people that are around you or think about them differently or you justify not helping them or you don't engage with them and you neglect them. Here's the thing that's fascinating to me. A lot of times we'll take this and we'll apply it to the general population, and we should. We absolutely should. Their problem was internal. They were mistreating their own people. This is what happens, right? When we're so focused on ourselves, we start mistreating the people we're supposed to be so connected to. There's a story um, uh, back in... uh, uh, with the Nazis back in wartime, um, in April 24th, 1918, where the Australian 50th Infantry Battalion pushed toward the Nazi trenches. It's a fascinating story. As they got close, somebody gave the order to start bombing the trenches, and so that's exactly what they did. Started bombing the trenches, and pretty soon those that were in the trenches were spreading out, and gunfire was, and all of a sudden, they're engaged in killing and being killed by the enemy. Except they weren't. They weren't. On that day, there were no Nazis in the trenches. Only British soldiers who were waiting for help but didn't know that that their allies had arrived. And so thousands of soldiers were killed by friendly fire. Killing uh, Killing allies and being killed by allies over and over and over again. Some estimate 75,000 French soldiers were killed by friendly fire in World War I. World War II. Friendly fire killing people that you're supposed to be connected to. I think this is what was happening in Israel. Attacking and mistreating the very people that you're supposed to be so intimately connected to. And friends, look here, we're not so different. If we're not careful, if we're not careful about how we view what God has blessed us with, if we're not careful with how we view the people God has placed around us, we begin to engage in friendly fire. Look at how Amos describes this in chapter 2. He says this, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. The punishment is coming for this because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. 
those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same woman so that the holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So he says, look, you got people, the silver here is symbolic of a huge debt. That's what it meant, represented. So the world economy in Amos' day was changing, it was shifting. And up until that time, Israel had existed mainly as a localized uh, group of farmers. But to keep up with the change in economy, the blessing that was coming their way, and to keep up with the influence and the influx of wealth that was coming in there, they had to change some things, which is fine, but they had to figure out a healthy way to do it, and instead they pursued an unhealthy way. They put people into debt. Things were so bad that people were going into debt to buy a pair of shoes. That's what that's saying. And here's the problem. When your debt was called to be collected, there was no such thing as declaring bankruptcy in that day. You had to sell yourself or your family into servitude. So they're literally becoming slaves. And then they're not, they're not treating the slaves right, all because all the money was being funneled to one group of people. And that one group of people was neglecting and, and mistreating the other people that they were supposed to be connected to. Look, the Bible describes this not as a charity issue. This is a justice issue, and there's a big difference. I like the way one preacher described it. He said, look, when we think of trying to help the poor and those who are in need, we consider it charity. But God calls it justice, and that's a big difference between charity, like if I don't do it, I'm just stingy, and justice, if I don't do it, I'm actually sinning. If I don't give my life to helping people that are marginalized and in need of help, I'm actually living opposed to how God has called me to live. These people were apathetic toward the people that were suffering around them. Why? Because they were so consumed with themselves, consumed with what they wanted and what they needed, their circumstances, their situations. He calls this a breach of justice. The word justice, it occurs over 200 times in the Old Testament. And it usually, you'll see it uh, as it talks about four different groups of people, widows, orphans, foreigners, and the poor. One scholar calls it the quartet of the vulnerable. And God says the just person, the person who is just and pursuing him is someone who engages in helping these groups of people, especially when they're among your own people, when they're your family living right around you. That's the just person. He says the unjust person, the person that Amos is addressing in this letter, the person who's not just is the person who views the blessings God has given them as to benefit only themselves. When they look at their bank account, the first thing they think about is them. And the first check they write at the beginning of the month is to themselves. They're constantly consumed with what they want and what they have and what they don't have. Look, I'm convinced. This is hard to say, man. But I'm convinced that one of the ways that Satan works most powerfully in the church to prevent the church from serving the outside world is using friendly fire and disunity on the inside. One of the ways that, God, that Satan distracts us from the outside world that we could be blessing I mean, the church should be the greatest blessing in the world. I read this week that the average evangelical Christian, right, church, gives 2.4% as a tithe. I also read this, that if every evangelical Christian in the United States gave 10%, actually tithed 10% of their giving, we would have no debt in the church and no unfunded missions, fully funded missionaries all around the world, not ever worrying about financial, having to raise support, if we gave what God has asked us to give in just 10%. So I'm convinced we get so consumed with ourselves and then we have drama within churches and people arguing over their preferences and Satan sitting back and saying, exactly, friendly fire, disunity. Now you're not focused on serving the world. And this is exactly what happened in their day. But there's this truth that comes out in the New Testament. There's this fascinating truth that the way that we treat one another is in fact the way that we treat God. 
And there's no escaping that. Look, do you remember when Jesus in Matthew chapter 25, when he gets done uh, teaching on the parable of the talents, and he, he, he has this famous saying where he says, some people are going to come to me and say, Lord, we did this and we did this. When did we do this? We did. And, and he says, hey, what you did for the least of these, you did for me. Remember that? Now, hold on to that thought. You go to Acts chapter 9 where the Apostle Paul, now I know, just stay with me. The Apostle Paul is traveling to Damascus to persecute Christians, and he gets knocked on his, off of his feet at this blinding light, and he hears a voice. Whose voice did he hear? Begins with a J, ends in Jesus. <laughs> Got it? All right, he hears the voice of Jesus, and what does Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? At that point, as far as we know, Saul and Jesus had never really hung out. He had never really spent a lot of time with him. So he hadn't really persecuted Jesus. As a matter of fact, by the time Saul's on the scene, Jesus had already been crucified, resurrected, and ascended to the, the Father. Jesus wasn't there. And yet he says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who was Saul persecuting? Christians. And yet Jesus makes this profound connection that he also makes in Matthew chapter 25. What you do to them, you do to me. Friends, I'm here to say the way we love and treat one another is the way that we treat Jesus. If you sinfully mistreat your brother or sister in Christ, do not think that you're in good standing with God. See, God is not, not accepting of us mistreating one another in the name of our own comfort, in the name of our own needs. Amos 6.1 says this, Woe to you who are at ease in Zion. Woe to you who live an easy life. Woe to you who sit back. Woe to you who don't pay attention to the needs of the people around you because you're so focused on your own comfort. It's coming, friends. The wake-up call is on its way. How we relate to others is how we relate to Jesus. And the hard truth this morning is this. You can't have one without the other. Their third problem, in addition to their love of money and their love of self, was their love of comfort. And what I mean by that is this. They had no tolerance for the truth. In fact, they got other preachers. The book of Amos tells us other preachers to come in and just affirm what they wanted to hear and just said, yeah, no, you don't have to listen to this guy Amos. And there was this controversy that takes place in the book as well. They just wanted the truth that they wanted. And what infuriated God, I think, more than anything else is the fact that they played as though they were really devoted to him. They went through all of their religious ceremonies normally. They just, they were hypocritical. But here's the thing. When we say hypocrite, we think, oh, you never back up what you say. Look, we're all hypocrites. Can I just say that out loud? Like every single person here, we're all a hypocrite. All the time. The Apostle Paul, Romans 7, says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. I'm a wretched man I am. I need grace. We all need grace. Here's what was frustrating about this, though, is the lack of a recognition of the need for grace. Meaning, they were proclaiming they loved God, proclaiming they were following God, going all the religious motions, doing all the right things. And then when they got to Monday through Saturday, they were anything but honoring the God they proclaimed to serve on Sunday. And this is what infuriated God. Because look, when we're not living a life of worship Monday to Saturday, seeking him, yeah, you'll mess up, but seeking him, it cheapens his character. It's not just about you. It actually takes away from his glory in the eyes of other people that need him desperately when we don't live the life of pursuit, a life that is pursuing him. Let me illustrate for you this way. Suppose my daughter... Uh, grows to be 25 years old, and she's single, but she really wants to be married, okay? She really, really wants to be married. And so I said, okay, I'm going to help with this. And so I take out a social media campaign, right? And I get online, and I, man, I, and I even get a, bill, a couple billboards in Indy with her picture. I'm like, you got to marry this girl. She's awesome. And, and I 
spread all that news everywhere I can. Like, come on, like, you got to marry my daughter. You're going to, like, does that help? No. That helps nothing at all. Why? Because anybody who actually showed up would think they were doing her a favor. They would think that they're showing up and they're actually doing her some sort of favor. They're actually helping her in some way. It cheapens her character. It takes away from who she really is. That's not how I'm going to approach it. Let me tell you how I'm going to approach it. This is the sta- I'm going to set the standard high. I was going to say that I would do this, but let me, let me rephrase it. I will have a multi-level interview process for any guy that shows up. I'm going to do extensive background checks, fully, international. I'm going to do a financial test. They're going to have to prove to me they can handle their finances. I'm going to have this guy followed, and I'm going to check up on every single one of his references. I'm going to, he will have references. I'm going to install cameras, and I'm going to make sure that he knows that I have the cameras and that I'm watching every movie he makes. And I don't want, look, here's the goal. I wouldn't want any guy that showed up to give my daughter lip service that he loved her. I want to know he loves her. I want to know that he loves her and that he cares about her. See, when, when our mouth is not backed up by our life, it cheapens the character of God. That's what it does. It takes away from who he really is. It doesn't represent the God of love and the God of grace, the God that cares deeply. And when we do that, and we think that we can show up on Sunday and worship God, but then on Monday start gossiping about other people and def- defaming them and saying things about them to make ourselves feel better, if we can show up on Monday and not be generous people, but be completely consumed and focused on our own financial standing and creating comfort for ourselves at the expense of other people, God will not tolerate it. Look at how Amos describes it in chapter 5. I hate, I'm reading this in a different translation that may show up on the screen, I'm not sure, but he says this, I hate all of your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I'm not going to accept your burnt offerings or your grain offerings. I'm not even going to notice. Think about how strong that is. I am going to ignore it to the point where I don't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I'm not even going to listen to the music of your harps. What God says is this. When your life doesn't live up to your lips, he doesn't want to hear it. And so they failed in their hearts to guard themselves from the power of greed. They failed to be present. They went through the motions in worship, just kind of letting it be this thing, and it just wasn't anything to the point where God didn't even want to hear them sing anymore. And they neglected the people that needed them the most, the people they were connected to intimately, and then the watching world around them. And they did nothing to serve people because they were consumed with themselves. So my second question I wrestled with as I studied this was this, how did they move forward? How did they move forward? Because here's the thing, I could stand up here and through Amos, you could easily stand up here and say, we got to deal with all kinds of things in our world. And I could point the finger to all kinds of things that are going on around us. I could talk about immigration policies, the liberal agenda of the media, the moral corruption in Hollywood, the intolerance of our education system, the financial corruption of politics in Wall Street. And I'd probably get a lot of amens. You go tell them. And that's exactly what happened with Amos when he showed up on the scene. In chapter 2, he's addressing, look, the enemies. All the enemies of Israel, they're going to get it. And everybody's like, yes, they're going to get it. That's so awesome. And he says, now let me talk about you. And they're like, ooh, we don't want to hear that. Which got me to thinking, the only way to move forward is to recognize that the problem might be us. Not everything going on around us. And that's really hard to, you know, look, you get encouraging emails when you say things that are encouraging. You either get no emails or not so encouraging emails when you say things that sometimes are true. This is about our heart. This is about you and I not changing our behavior. 
I cannot stress that enough. Like, I want to preach that till I die. The gospel message is not about you changing the way you behave. It's about transforming your heart. The only solution to this, as unattractive as it might be, would be to lean into Jesus, to lean heavily into Jesus. Look at how Amos says their solution should be. He says in chapter 5, verse 14, Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. That's what you need to focus on. God being with you, present with you, loving you, caring for you, being with a people that he shouldn't be with because of their sin problem, but deciding he loves them so much he'll overcome their sin problem for them. Verse 15, hate evil. The only way to hate evil is to love good, and the only source of real good, if you do your homework, is God. Love God and establish justice in the gate. So you only can do justice when you lean in and love God. Verse 23, jump down there. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of the harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And the only way to be just and the only way to be righteous is for you to allow God to do for you what you can't do for yourself. Left to ourself, we love money, we love comfort, and we, di- we mistreat people. But when we allow the gospel message to penetrate our hearts, it changes everything. A couple things to give you as we walk away. Chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, describes this beautiful coming where essentially God says through Amos, there's coming a day when I'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. There's going to come a day when your crops grow to the point where you you cannot even consume them, there's so much. And he's pointing to the coming of Jesus. He's saying the Messiah is going to come. He's going to bring a day when I wipe every tear from every eye and I do for you what you're powerless to do for yourselves. But until that day, lean into me. And so two practical things for you to take with you that have helped me lean heavily into the Lord when I am distracted by my own comfort, my own finances, or I find myself in a place where I have hostility towards other people. The first is this, eliminate assumptions. I say this to every couple I meet with for premarital counseling. Assumptions should be a cuss word in your household. Make no assumptions at all. Don't assume you know how someone's going to behave or they're going to respond or they're going to react or what they're thinking or what their motives are. No assumptions. Just lean into the Lord. Don't assume that God's mad at you. Test it. Don't assume that you're not able to be tempted and distracted. You are capable. We all think we're better than we really are. And instead of just assuming that you're good, do a consistent rhythm of checking your heart. I would encourage you, friends, to include two or three people in your life that you allow to be completely honest with you without the fear of reprimanding them people that you trust and love, and you just say, no assumptions. I don't want to assume that my heart's in a good place. Tell me with clarity, where am I at? Does it appear to you that I'm too focused on money and my own comfort and my own financial standing? Does it appear to you that I have strife and discontent with people that are around me? Tell me what you see in my heart, because you're powerless to see with clarity what's going on in your own heart. The other one is this, and we say this to our kids at home all the time, others first. This is based on Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. that says, consider the needs of other people as more important than yourselves. Beautiful verse to live by, but you cannot remove it from its context. Two verses later, chapter 5, he says, the only way to consider other people more important than yourself is to have this mind in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but in humility, he gave himself up for you. The only way, friends, you can put other people above yourself, the only way I'm convinced any teaching in this entire world that's not self-centered is the gospel. It's the only one. You can't find a single self-help book, another religion, another worldview, another philosophy or teaching that pales, they all pale in comparison 
The only one that will truly allow us to love other people sacrificially above ourselves is the truth of the gospel. Why? Because in that moment, we realize that the God of the universe did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. So the only response we have is to love other people and to be a generous people that give consistently to others. Here's the truth I want you to know. Biblical faith is more than something we confess with our mouths. It's something we confess with our lives. Period. If I want to know who you worship, I can just watch you live. I don't just have to listen to you sing. I just watch how you live. This is the truth he wanted to tell the people. So I want to close out a little bit different today. We're going to close out with, uh, Ben's going to lead us here in just a moment through a time of confession and singing. And it might feel a little weird to you, and I understand that. But as a group of people, developing a rhythm of confession and repentance is only healthy. He's going to lead us through a time of uh, singing right after that, just a song, and then he'll close us out here in a moment. But I want to start with you and with me. And so I'm going to pray here in a moment, but I'm going to be quiet just for a moment. And in that moment, I want you to evaluate your heart. Think about where you're at. Think about what God is stirring in you in this moment. Like, it's okay. It's okay to not be okay in this moment. It's okay to feel broken and to struggle in this moment. And so I'm going to pray. We're going to have a moment of just quiet reflection. And then I'm going to pray for us. And when I'm done praying, Ben's going to lead us in a time of confession and singing. But in this moment, ask yourselves. Ask yourselves. Are you just confessing Jesus with your mouth? In your everyday life? Or are you worshiping him with all of your life? Let's pray.